Hello, friends. Greg Kokel, uh, Stand of Reason is the show, and I welcome you to it. And today we have an off-schedule show, so no one's listening, <laughs> at least not live, as they often do with live streaming, and no one knows to call me right now uh, because you don't know when I'm on. And those are the occasions when we take our open mic calls. These are calls that you have um, already um recorded for us uh, either by calling us at a special number or by going to our website, to our homepage, str.org, then under podcasts, choosing live broadcasts, and uh, offering your question there. Incidentally, I think we prefer the computer version rather than the call-in version. For some reason, it's easier for Amy and the others on this end to process those things, but uh, we collect those calls, and I got like pages and pages of it here, and I, uh, over time, work through them and answer your calls. It's great because it gives you an opportunity to have your voice heard, literally, because we hear your voice, we play the recorded call, and it gives me an opportunity to answer the concern that you've raised. Now, there's not much opportunity, (laughs) actually none, for interaction between you and I, which I do enjoy. But uh, nevertheless, this is a a good second best for your live voice to be part of the question. And you don't have to wait in line. You don't have to wait on hold. You don't have to thread the needle time-wise for a regular show where people will call in. That would be 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesdays, Pacific time. And uh, so, and it also helps me when we have a backlog of these that I can uh, put together a show off schedule so that when I'm not on schedule... We have a show we could air for your enjoyment and edification. So I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the questions here, and I think I want to take on a question that I can't answer entirely, but I still have something to say about. And this is a, a, a question about um, long hair, short hair, head coverings, no head coverings from First Corinthians chapter eleven. This is Andrew Wills. So can we run Andrew's uh, call here? Por favor. Hey, Greg. Um, I wanted to come in with a question about 1 Corinthians 11, uh, specifically verses 13 and 16. Okay. Um, in 13, it says, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And in 16, it says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice uh, nor do the churches of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in other translations, it says we have no other practice. Um, now I know I've looked into this and it's a very cultural thing. So there are, um, cultural differences in different places. Um, and it, evol- it involves being culture uh, seen culturally as pure, but, um, I don't have any concise way to explain to people that no <laughs> Christian women don't need to wear, uh, head coverings. So, um, I would greatly appreciate it if you could, um, show me any way to concisely explain um, about these cultural differences or whatever, what other ex- uh, explanations that you have. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> this is a challenging passage because it's a longer passage that has a lot of detail. Um, and um, I'm looking here, chapter 11, and you started in, I think, verse um, 13, where it says, a judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, the material before that talks about an order, 
all right, um, and an, an order of creation, and therefore an order of submission that is part of God's plan, and then an application of that principle, that concept, that that plan or order that God has, in a certain sense, built into creation, and um, the application has to do with something we wear on the outside. You know, it might be a good idea just for me to read that, but before I do, I just want you to know that I am not going to be able to give a thoroughgoing answer to this, because I think it would take more study on my part. Um, So I'm not sure, Andrew, if I'm going to answer your question to your satisfaction. That is, give you something you tell other people so they will draw the conclusion that this is kind of time-bound, culture-bound, and doesn't apply in the same way today as it did back then. Um, incidentally, it, ha- it, it hasn't been so long that this understanding, long ago, that the understanding of this passage has changed. Because I recall um, growing up Roman Catholic and being born in 1950, so Catholic school, my first four years, kindergarten and first, second, third, fourth grade, before we started going going to public school, and certainly masses up until I was in my mid-teens, uh, late teens, high school, senior year, okay, um, that's when I kind of made my break with the Catholic Church, and up until that time, women were obliged to have their heads covered with either a hat or maybe a doily-type thing. Is that the right word? Like a little round doily thing? That's, they didn't call them doilies then, though. But they put the doily—Amy <laughs> thinks this is funny. Um, but she doesn't know what I'm talking about. So you have just a little cloth, round thing that's about the size of a, you know, a tortilla. I don't know. <laughs> a corn tortilla that is doily-looking with a little frilly thing. And they'd, they'd put it on their heads with a little bobby pin, and that's a head covering. Or they'd wear a hat, particularly around Easter, hats were more popular for that event. We dressed up. So those trends have changed, and uh, I suspect in the Roman Catholic Church they no longer require that. But the point I'm making is for even up until just, you know, the 20th century, mid-20th century, this was still a practice. Now, it might be that there was a biblical reason for doing that, and then it became a cultural norm, and that it continued on as a cultural norm, not necessarily something people thought the Bible required. Okay, I'm just saying about the history there. When you come back to the text, it says, um, let me see, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, um, every man, verse 4, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Okay, now that's important. We'll come back to that. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, 
but the woman is the glory of man, for the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, the Lord in the Lord neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So judge for yourselves, and here's the verse question, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And uh, th- does not even nature itself teach that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Okay, now that's the section in question. There's a lot going on there, and I just want to make a couple of observations. And one is that there is a creation order that God has established, and that's one of the first things that that is mentioned, a divine order of subordination wives to husbands. Now, of course, this is not the only place in the New Testament this is identified. We see it in Ephesians chapter 5. We see it in Titus chapter 2. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, We see it in 1 Corinthians 10. We see it in a number of places, okay, that the divine order in marriage is that the husband's are the head of the family. Now, this is con- contended. That this is um, uh, there, there. There are differences of opinion about this. Okay, but it strikes me as fairly straightforward. The husband is the head of the family, and um, and and the wife is responsive, a partner, an important player, but still not first in command. Okay. Uh, you have a captain and a co-captain, right? Now, they're, they're, just on common reflection, there seems to be a common sensibility about that um, because, I mean, at stand a reason, we have a president and we have an executive director. Uh, we don't have two presidents. Um, and the re- reason is, that you, well, you can see why. It just c- creates problems. How do you get things done? How do you make decisions when two people at the top have equal say, so to speak. Someone, it seems to me, has to be the tiebreaker or have veto power in some fashion, okay? But uh, this seems to be the the biblical standard and it being reinforced here, okay? Now, <clears throat> there, so there is a divine thing in place here. There is also a, a clarification that even though there is a hierarchy within certain institutions, in this insti- institution being marriage, that doesn't mean there is a value distinction between the two that are involved in the hierarchy. They are still equally valuable, and comments are made to that effect in the passage. Um, There is a distinction, though, between the two that is visible, okay? And and this, I think, um, is important here. So, let me pause for a minute and make a, a broader reflection. <clears throat> it appears to me, 
when you think about the teaching of the New Testament um, taken as a whole, especially vis-a-vis with regards to up and against and compared to the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system and the entire system that was represented by the scribes and the Pharisees as proper Jewish religion at the time, it appears to me that there were many things that were externals in the law and in the practice of the spiritual leaders of that time that Jesus was dismissive of in this new economy coming up. Because his point was, it's the not the externals that matter. It's the internals that matter. It isn't what you put in your body, speaking here of uh, kosher laws, that defile. You're not going to def- get defiled because you eat a shrimp. It's what comes out of the body that is defiling. So a powerful emphasis here in the New Testament era is a, a, a di- uh, maybe dismissal is too strong of a word, but something like that, of the externals. Okay? And um, you have phylacteries. These are prayer boxes that people would put on their forehead, the Jews would, because, I, in my view, they misread something from the Old Testament where it says, keep my word, you know, attached to your forehead. Well, it strikes me that that really is referring to keeping it in your mind and knowing it and obeying it, but they physically put it on their forehead. And then this phylactery, which Jesus says some people broaden, they make it bigger to make it look like they're more religious, okay? Jesus is dismissive of that. This doesn't mean anything. You broaden your phylacteries, right? You make yourself look more spiritual, but down inside your heart, you're not spiritual at all. So, point being, in so many of these things, the emphasis is is on what's inside, not on the external characterization. For example, um, Jesus is concerned about the practice of praying in public because people pray in public as a show of spirituality, and so they draw a lot of attention to themselves, so people think, oh, you're so spiritual. Look at the clothes you wear and the way you speak and all you're doing, and it's they're just showing off. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't pray in public. Pray in private. Okay? And he says, uh, you're fast. Don't fast with a long face like, oh, me, look at what I'm doing. Wash your face. Look cheerful. Don't tell people what you're doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Okay? Now, there's an external that he is concerned with, uh, praying on the street corner and announcing to others that you're fasting. But what was the problem? The problem wasn't praying on the street corner or announcing that you're fasting. The problem was spiritual pretense. And so the exterior was addressed insofar as it represented something on the interior that was a concern. So the general principle here is what God is concerned about is not these external trappings that aren't the point but rather the internal things that are the point, that really matter. Okay, so with that in mind, when I go to a passage in the New Testament that talks about women putting stuff on their heads and men not having long hair, is it, this is an external 
And is this really a command? I mean, at the heart of it, this durable, long-term, inviolable command for women to have something on their heads and men not to do that, at least when they're praying? Or is there something else going on here? And, and my answer is it's something else going on here, because the, the exterior elements seem to be inconsequential, just like with praying in public and fasting. It's not commanded that you never pray in public, but rather you don't pray in public for the reasons that Jesus condemns. You, you're not under obligation never to tell somebody, I'm fasting today. What you are under obligation to do is not parade that around to people in a self-righteous kind of fashion. Okay, so these externals are only valuable externals insofar as they represent something internal. And when it no longer represents that internal thing, well, then it's not—it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. It's not an issue. It's not the action itself that is immoral. There are some actions that are immoral, but these kinds of things are—it's not the point that Jesus is getting at. And as Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 11, we are seeing something else going on. What, what Paul says is there's a created order. That created order means something. It means that the woman is there to serve the man, and I think you could what you could substitute here properly— is husband to wife, because even though Adam and Eve were the first man and woman, um, they were also the first husband and wife. And I don't think there's Amy here, She because she's a woman, she's obliged to serve me as a male, or Derek or any of the other males on our team. No, it's the relationship that dictates the relationship, right? And so um, husbands, then, have a role, and wives are the helpmate to the husbands, that's the nature of their role, and the and the husband's the captain, and the wife is the co-captain. Okay, there is a pattern of submission that's there. It isn't the wife in charge and the man follows. That's undignified, according to what Paul is saying. It's rather the husband is in charge and the wife follows. There's a dignity to that. Now, to make that relationship that God has ordained visible, there are there there are physical things that that can be done to manifest the nature of that relationship and he, and he talks about the head coverings and the uh and 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 the, the length of hair for men now he also says something else um and he talks about women who have shaved their head let's just see where it is okay for uh, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Okay, now my understanding is that that women who had their heads shaved were prostitutes, and I don't know why that worked out that way, and I'm, I'm just going based on my recollection. And so this is where I could probably do more study. But the point is, women who dressed a certain way seemed identified with a disreputable group. And that is the underlying concern. Now, there was a cultural way of manifesting that, and that, uh, that, that underlying concern, and women have their head covers, and, and 
no problem and not get their head shaved. Okay, that protected them. That isn't the circumstance anymore, so we don't have to, in, in my sense here, pursue the culturally relevant manifestation of, of submission and being under authority when those circumstances no longer apply. It wouldn't even be recognized as such. However, the underlying issue that has to do with the character is still in place. And this is the kind of thing that I think matters across culture. Insofar as head coverings represented a, a visual element regarding this, then this was applied across the culture where it applied, but things have changed. But the principle of submission is still the same. And we see this in many places. This is the only place about head coverings that I know of in the Bible. But the principle that is being uh, reinforced by their head coverings, that's in other places. Because this is durable. This goes back to the very beginning. This is God's plan for human flourishing. <clears throat> now, having said that, I want to make an observation. I actually think the principle that is underlying the head coverings is constantly violated in our culture by Christian women. And now I'm not talking about guys right now. I'd have something else to say to guys, but I'm not. But right here, it's the, it seems to be indicating the husband and wife have a, a relative position of authority, and that ought not to be switched. That's shameful for the man and for the woman. But I see that either switched with some frequency, or at least the sense that the woman is the wife here is under the authority of the husband is not acknowledged. And Christian wives push their husbands around with some regularity in a way that's not appropriate for what's being described here. Now, what's interesting is if you fast forward in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, you hear something that's got to grate on the ears of women in the church in light of the cultural sensibilities not biblical, but cultural. So I'm just going to read it. And there's, uh, let's see, there are six verses here addressing women and one verse addressing men. Now, you can make what you want about that, but I think Peter, in chapter 3, has a lot to say to women because I think they're under the greatest temptation to step out of God's hierarchy here. He's talking about different types of honorable relationships here, and uh, in chapter 3, he starts, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Okay, that's enough. Next. No, he doesn't stop. He keeps going. So that even if any of them, the husbands, are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior. Which behavior? the submissive behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So three characteristics of, of an appropriate wife relationship to her husband, that she is submissive, that she is chaste, and she is respectful regarding him. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on jewelry, but uh, rather dresses, 
but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now there's another detail, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. And then he draws from the past regarding this exhortation. For in this way the former times, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, now there's the focus in their submission and respectful behavior is in God. They're obeying Him. They're respecting God by respecting their husband, etc. They hoped in God, and they used to adorn themselves with—let me start the sentence again. For in this way, the former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, says that word again, just as, new example, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Hmm. And you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. If you do what is right, what what is that that he says is right to do? What he just described, submitting, respecting, being chaste, being gentle and quiet in spirit, not quiet in voice, quiet in spirit, obeying and calling Lord, him Lord. In other words, you're in charge. That's the part I don't see. Now, it's it's true in many cases, but there's a lot of cases where no Christian wife will say, honey, this is what I want, but you are Lord in our household. Now, that's an archaic way of putting it. I understand that, and I'm not suggesting that the external has to match, but the internal needs to be there. Different ways of expressing, honey, you're in charge. You're the Lord. You're the head of this household. You're the breadwinner. You're responsible for everything. You're the captain. You're the chief. That's the way the Scripture characterizes it. And so in the 1 Corinthians passage, all Paul is identifying is some culturally meaningful ways of of affirming visually or to others that the wife is under the submission appropriately of her husband. But I think what's happened is the body of Christ has been deeply influenced by the culture in this regard, and uh, this issue almost never gets addressed. I, I listen to preachers talk about passages like this, and it's the, it's, the, it's the guys, the emphasis is on the guys, because in First Peter we do have, after the six verses I read to you, verse 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir to the grace, grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, very important, lots of stuff there, the husbands need to be alerted to. But it's after a whole bunch of stuff that the wives are supposed to be alerted to. In our culture, even in Christian culture, I think what happens is the husbands in marriage get beat up all the time when there's issues about marriage, and the women are almost never addressed on the issue that Peter actually spends a whole lot more time on addressing. Um, That is to the women and not to the men. And so my take then on this passage, 
is that what is eternal is the internal hierarchy that God has established within the relationship of marriage for the good of marriage and the family, even though there's no distinction in value, there still is a distinction in authority. And that's a good thing. Okay? And that's why it's in there. Now, there's a whole lot more that I could say about this. I, I, how could it possibly be inherently evil to have long hair when there is a vow that's a spiritual vow taken by spiritual people called the Nazarite vow? We, they never cut the hair. It just grows and grows and grows. That's the vow that um, Samson had taken or his mother had taken for him. Of course, he got his hair cut and he got in trouble, right? But he had long hair. Absalom had long, his hair, hair was so long, it killed him, kind of. He got caught in the branches of a tree, and he was hanging there, and uh, who was it that came up, the captain of David's army, and, and slew him? Joab, yeah. Of course, I don't know if we should take Absalom as an example of a righteous man, but nevertheless, it didn't seem in their case, and certainly with the Nazarite vow, that there was something in itself wrong with men having longer hair. But there is something inherent to the nature of the husband-wife relationship that God expects the authority to flow from the husband down through the wife. They're captain and co-captain, uh, but the captain has a harder job for a number of reasons I don't have time to get into here, but it's a harder job. And so I think that's what's being expressed here. I think then we can, in a certain sense, be uh, dismissive of the type or the... Um, am I using the right words here? Of, of the outward sign, let's call it that. But we cannot be dismissive of the inward spiritual reality that that particular sign in that time spoke to, addressed. There are different ways that the same truth about what's inside of us can be expressed externally nowadays, and I think that's what matters. But I am concerned that it doesn't happen, <laughs> that the attitude is not, you know, um, the husband is the Lord of the family. He is the one in charge. And he's the tiebreaker. Now, he doesn't have moral latitude to rule harshly and with impunity. And th this is why I think his role is going to be more difficult, because he has to make a lot of righteous, careful judgments to do what is best for the circumstance, for the marriage, for the family, and not just what he wants. And I realize this particular principle has been is is abused, but you don't counter abuse with another kind of abuse of, of a divine principle. You address the abuse, and when I say abuse, I mean abuse of the principle. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about physical abuse, though sometimes that's an example of an abuse of the principle of leadership, and that needs to be addressed aggressively. All right, um, so there are limits to the requirement to submit. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians 5 is uh, that they submit as unto the Lord. That is, because the Lord says so, and consistent with the kinds of things that God wants from us in behavior. 
So, I mean, if, if Jesus wouldn't tell us to do what, uh, in other words, Jesus wouldn't tell us to do something sinful, so therefore if our if husband says to do something sinful, then you're not going to do that, because that's inconsistent with the way the principle is expressed in Ephesians 5. So I realize there's some complication here. I don't want to miss the big picture. What's the concern here is not the externals. What the concern is with the internals. And the internals are durable, and God set things up a certain way. And so I'm concerned not when women don't wear a doily on their head or whatever, or men having long hair, I am concerned when women are running—when I say women, I mean wives here, the context of the home—are running things, and, the, you know, the, the husband is second in command. Sometimes husbands have abrogated leadership. I understand that. I'm not speaking so much to that. Out of necessity, mom steps up. I'm talking about when leadership has been, in one way or another, seized from the husband. And there's plenty of verses that make it very clear what that looks like, and it is not the popular cultural view. So I can understand the pushback. But it's important that both husband and wives take their cues from Scripture itself and what the writers of Scripture mean when they say these things. And I don't think the meaning regarding this is ambiguous. Even in 1 Corinthians 11, What's ambiguous is the durability of the signs or the tokens of submission. What isn't ambiguous is the submission. Okay, so maybe that's the thing to take away from this discussion, even though I haven't unpacked all the particular details about shaved heads and prostitutes and stuff like that. Um, let's, uh, let's take a break here, and we'll come, ba- come back with more of your open mic calls on Stand to Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. All right, here we are. 
back with you again. Greg Kogel, Stand to Reason is the show and um, doing our open mic calls today. So here's one on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, D-E-I. Well, let's hear from Cody. Hey, Greg. Hey. I just graduated and have been looking for a research job in Seattle. And after being accepted and during the hiring paperwork, um, this company required me to submit or will require me to submit a diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, anti-racism statement. Um, according to their instructions, the requirements are that the diversity statement may include a description of the candidate's commitment to DEI, a demonstration of the candidate's understanding of DEI's uh, as principles and goals and their importance, or description of candidates' past efforts, as well as future plans to advance anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. My question is, well, clearly I won't affirm what they are calling DEI or anti-racism in my statement, but is it ethical to simply state my own value for what I would call diversity, equity, and inclusion, what they actually meant up until a few years ago, or would it be necessary to take the next step and directly confront their misuse uh, and misdirection of these terms. Hmm. In other words, is simply presenting my own view of these words without directly opposing theirs, um, would that be playing into their lie? Hmm. Thank you. Well, this is a tough question because um, there's a lot going on here. <clears throat> and one of the things that's on the, the table here for you, um, Cody, is is a job. Now, in this case, you're applying for a job, but other people have been in a circumstance where they have a job, and now they have to affirm these kinds of things in order to, uh, in in order to keep their job, or or so it seems. Now, just as a point of information, uh, Cody has gotten back with us and says he didn't end up having to produce the paperwork. Um, stating his position one way or another, but he still wanted to hear my answer. So he's able to dodge this bullet, thankfully. And I, I don't, what, what you have here, let me just talk around the issue a little bit. What you have here is a, um, a contentious political point of view that is being enforced in places of employment. So if you do not agree with the politics, and this is politics, you can call it anti-racism if you want, but it's a political characterization of what the word racism even means, that it's a parochial partisan way of looking at it. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think he might have had another word included there, too. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Um, it used to be critical race theory, um, at least to be called that. That fell in, in disrepute because there was a lot of objection to what was being taught. So now they've just basically changed the acronym and the wording to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it still amounts to the same thing. All right. And, and these things enforced uh, create a significant liability for personal liberty, personal conscience, and ability to have freedom of thought in the workplace. I mean, if you're asked to express your point of view on these issues, um, then and your job, either getting a job or keeping your job is on the line, 
based on your answers, why are you obliged to answer this? Well, how can this be, how can this be required? But it it seems to be. What if we said, okay, um, I'm I'm. I, we make uh, XYZ widgets here. We're the XYZ widget company. Oh, you want to be involved in marketing here? Are you pro-life? Give me your best argument for the pro-life view. And if I'm satisfied, I will hire you, maybe. Well, most people would consider that inappropriate. But it's only considered inappropriate because what I did is I gave you a conservative example of enforcing a parochial viewpoint in the marketplace. And um, now, why would anyone think that, well, I, I guess there are, but racism cla- classically construed or discrimination or any of that, why would, why, why would a person think that a, a prospective employee, employee would be racist or prejudiced in that sense? Why assume vice on behalf of those people that are applying? Now, sometimes they ask, have you ever been arrested or imprisoned for something? Okay. But that's because some you've committed some crime and went through due process and you were found guilty. And it's good that they know about that. But now they're examining your your character using a, 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 uh, a screening method that reflects their own parochial, partisan, political perspective. Lots of P's there, but they apply. Okay, so why why is that the criterion by which you work? And it seems to me that in many cases, this could be clearly a violation of the 1964 Equal Rights Act. Nobody seems to care about that anymore, to be honest with you, it, it just seems like every time you turn around, I see violations of that, and no one's prosecuting it because it doesn't fit with the political framework and narrative of those who have, at the moment, the political power. Now, of course, keep in mind, once the political power shifts and the power is in the hands of the other side, it's very likely your ox is going to be gored. If you have championing these issues this way, based on the power you have, and then you lose the power. This is why the rule of law is so important. The law is supposed to apply to everyone the same. And when it isn't applied to everyone the same, you rectify the problem as best you're capable. You don't ignore the rule of law. But nevertheless, this is what many Christians or people in general are faced with. I, I mentioned Christian because characteristically, given Christian values, they sit on the conservative side of the political spectrum, and it is the 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 non-conservative side that is largely in power now and can use the power against those who are different from them. And so they exploit the other, which is what the left used to complain about in the past. And is still complaining about today, even though they do it themselves with with great flair and success, and consequently they are able to uh, dictate the way people are must act like they believe. You can't dictate a belief, but you can dictate an action and punish actions to the contrary, or speech 
to the contrary. Okay, so now back with that kind of backdrop, back to Cody. Okay, the problem with DEI um, statements is the ambiguity, like anti-racism. That was something that Cody mentioned. Okay, well, what does that mean? Now, it, it used to be kind of silly to ask the question because the statement racism or the word racism had a very particular meaning. Now, this has been radically changed through efforts like critical race theory, okay? Because on that view, only white people can be racist. It's not possible for a person of color to be racist. So when you're anti-racist, what that means is you are anti-white in practical terms. Okay, so when you, anyone who's faced with this responsibility, they have to have, and it's fair to request this or even demand it, before I can assign this statement or, or respond to your request for information on my, my side, I need to know precisely what you're asking for. What does equity mean? Now, I know what equity means. Um, it's equity, not equality. Equality meant, as best as we could do it, making sure there was a level playing field where people started and trying to accommodate in such a way or not put legal barriers in the way that keeps people from starting at the same point, at least with regards to the government. Obviously, somebody who's rich is starting at a different place. Rich family is starting at a different place than someone in a poor family, okay? But the, you know, the government did do that. This is whatever other dynamics are in place. But as far as the government is concerned, we all get an equal shot. That's why you have something like the 1964 Equal Rights Act, because what you can't do is you can't unlevel the playing field at the outset for the kinds of reasons people were doing it, for racial reasons, for ethnic reasons, for um, sex reasons, gender reasons, for... I, I actually don't recall everything that's on that bill. The classic things were more like uh, race and religion, okay? Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been added ever since to these notions, but the point is there are, there are things that should not prevail that disqualifies somebody. There are criterion that ought not be allowed in the workplace to disqualify people from participation in bettering their lives. So equality means let's do everything we can to give everybody an equal shot at a great life. And if they want to chase it down, good for them. If they don't, well, that's their business. That's not what equity means. Equity means not even playing field at the beginning but even equalized results at the end. Everybody ends up with the same, the very different notion. The first is an American notion. The second is a Marxist notion, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Okay? And uh, so, so you can't write in response to affirm something that you don't understand. You've got to get clarity on all these issues, and this is where, if I was in a circumstance like this, and I'm, I, thankfully I'm not, and I hope I never will be, because this is an unjust circumstance to be placed in, I would want to be really, really careful 
about what I about what was meant by all the words. And then I would pursue the requirement, since it is a requirement, it may be an unjust requirement, an unreasonable requirement, an inappropriate requirement. Nevertheless, in our culture now, these kinds of things are requirements. I would pursue the requirement as best I can, answering the questions as honestly as I could, and as shrewdly as I could, and as shrewdly as I could, so as not to get myself into trouble, but just offer an answer with integrity when the questions are asked. I know there's more to Cody's question, but I'm just taking it step by step here. Now, I want to make another observation from the New Testament, especially in the life of Paul. Uh, Paul, and so did Jesus, actually, now I think about it, sought to avoid persecution when he could. When Jesus knows knew that there was trouble brewing in Jerusalem, he didn't go up to Jerusalem. When Paul was facing persecution early on in Damascus, was it Damascus? Or they lowered him over the wall in a basket so he could escape persecution. Um, when Jesus said in Matthew 10, I believe, he says, when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Now, the principle here is, is that we don't have to stand and take persecution we can avoid. <laughs> it's smart to avoid it. It's okay. Now, there are limits to what we can do in avoiding it. We can't deny Christ to avoid the persecution, but if we can run from it, if we can flee from it, if we can find some way around it without compromising our integrity, the flight itself is not a compromise of our integrity. It's okay. And so it's good for us to talk when you're put in a circumstance like this, is what kind of wording would be appropriate? What kind of language can I use that, that, uh, that answers the question but doesn't put me as much at risk? Now, that's not always easy to do, and I understand that. But anyway, the point I'm making is we can approach these things and try to avoid fulfilling the requirement, the unjust requirement, in a way that, that uh, first of all, compromises our integrity, and also we can avoid th- those ways in which f- puts at us at risk, unnecessary risk, risk that we could forestall if we're careful. That's fine. So that's a principle you want to bring into, the, into this, these kinds of responses. Now, um, I guess there were two particular aspects of Cody's response. Shall I, um, if required, and it turned out it wasn't, but should should I just try to slip by, <laughs> answer as best I can with integrity, and just kind of slip by and avoid any conflict? Or am I morally obliged to, as he put it, directly confront the misuse of these terms? Now, uh, to put things simply, I don't think you're morally obliged to directly confront the misuse of those terms. I think there are some things that it seems morally obligatory to stand against and say no to, but this doesn't seem to be one of them. It's manipulation. Now, it might be that you're actually indirectly confronting the misuse of the terms by asking for the definitions and clarity on what these terms mean. 
And when you get all the clarity down, and I've said this many times before with the Colombo number one, that is, what do you mean by that question? A question that's gathering more information so you get clarity on it, that it's not just for clarity for the Christian, but it's clarity for the person who's making the statement that's ambiguous. They get away with a lot of things because of the ambiguity of the statements they make. When you ask for clarity and they are forced to get more precise, their views do not look as good even to them as they did when they were still being vague, general, and ambiguous. Okay, so there's a sense in which by asking these questions, you are, you are inadvertently challenging the concepts. That's shrewd, in my view. All right, and so um, you're not obliged to directly confront the misuse of the terms. Now, you can do it, but the question is obliged. And the difficulty, of course, is if you, if you do challenge the status quo, you do, you know, go after the man, so to speak, um, well, there are risks that are associated with that. In, in uh, Cody's case, he might not get the job, which may be fine for him, but that's a risk. Um, if you already have a job, you could stand up and, and be a martyr <laughs> and, uh, you know, hoist yourself on your sword by standing firm against the authorities, and maybe that will do some good, and maybe it won't. That's part of what you have to assess. Like I said, I don't think a person is morally obliged to confront this kind of thing, at least not at this point. Um, now, Solzhenitsyn said when he left Soviet Union, when he was expelled in, what, 1974, <clears throat> he's the Soviet dissident who spent 10 years in the Gulag as a Christian, and uh, wrote about it and exposed the Soviet system for what it was. The books were, one was called The Gulag Archipelago, another one was A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and he's a Nobel laureate because of his exposure with his literature. Uh, he said, you know, he wrote a piece, which is his last shot in this verbal battle. Uh, the title of this essay was Live Not by Lies. And Solzhenitsyn said, and this is characterized in a little bit more detail in a book I read last year called Live Not by Lies, okay, his title. But Rod Dreher was the author, and it's a great book on this kind of thing, itemizing the ways to take, some ways to take Solzhenitsyn's exhortation and apply it to your life in our circumstance here. But um, basically saying you can't live according to lies. You can't affirm something that's not true. And this is where I do think you have an ethical responsibility. Whenever you write in response to something, whenever you speak and, and, and do a summary or anything, the kind of thing that Cody was describing he was facing in the past, you have to do it with integrity, and you cannot affirm what's false. Now, you can be careful how you respond, be shrewd, be clever if you're able to. But you cannot affirm what's false. Now, in the new book, I have some strategies about how to deal with this, the new book being Street Smarts, coming out in September. And uh, one of the questions I ask is, do you think it's 
appropriate for a person to live authentically according to his own identity. <laughs> now that's their language, right? That's the way they affirm or they force the affirmation of gender-confused people. Um, the the gender-confused people have to live an authentic life, and it's your job to support that. Okay, well, do you think that applies to other people? Okay, well, here is my authentic self, my authentic Christian self, and my convictions. And so what you're asking them to do is the same thing, in a certain sense, they're asking you to do, but they're asking you to do it illicitly. They're asking you to affirm something else you don't agree with, because the other person wants you to. All you're asking you is not to change somebody else's view, but to keep your own view. And that's the key. We're not demanding somebody else change their view. We are just requiring that we be allowed to have our view. And I think that is the ethic that should guide, or one of them, guide your response. You speak with integrity. You try to speak cleverly. You don't take on the, the risk if you don't need to. But if push comes to shove, you stand your ground saying, essentially, I'm not telling anybody else how to believe. I just want to be allowed to believe what I believe. Okay, hope that helps, Cody. Tough job. Appreciate your uh, your call. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.